the very and strange and for very careful readers in our modern Western context, honestly, sometimes it's almost off-putting how Paul thanks them. For instance, just to give you one example, he says, guys, thanks for your gift. Although, uh, let me point this out. He never actually says thank you. That that itself kind of bothers people when they read this. Is is It is clearly verses 10 through 20, thanks for your gift, but he doesn't say thank you to them. But even when he says, hey, I, I rejoice, that that's a good thing that he says that, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern. But then the very next thing in verse 11 that he says is not that I'm speaking of being in need because I've learned to be good. Imagine bringing a gift to somebody and they're like, this is nice, but just so you know, I don't need this. <laughs> It's like, oh, like if somebody did that to me, unless there was some larger context of our relationship or their tone of voice, my initial instinct would be that's ungrateful. My initial instinct would be that's that that's somebody whose EQ is low in this moment. You don't respond to a gift, which is, you know, I don't actually need this. And yet, Paul does that here. We're going to see that this is not actually at all. Hopefully, you would know this. Hopefully, you guessed this. This is not Paul being low EQ. This is not Paul being um, kind of invulnerable and not transparent or, or, or being kind of rude to them. There's two main things that we'll work through today with respect to this. One is that the cultural expectations in the ancient world with gifts were very, very, very different than ours were today. And friendship was understood in very specific ways. And so what Paul is really doing in this passage is he's a good pastor. He is trying to help them understand how the gospel changes, how we give and receive gifts to each other, and how we understand our relationships, our friendships with each other. Let me start with something that that I, the first time I read this 20 years ago, it got into my head. Every time I reread this book, this is one of the five or six books I've reread the most and would commend to you. It's Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I remember at the very end of the book, and it always stands out to me, that he's talking about these new men and women in Christ that God is forming around the world in Christ through the spirit. And you can't recognize them by their skin color or their gender or their Enneagram or Myers-Briggs type. You can't recognize them by whether they're rich or poor or Democrats or, or Republicans. They're just, there's profound diversity in the church. And yet he says there are certain commonalities that when you understand the gospel, you, you can begin spotting no matter how different our backgrounds are, no matter how different our stories are, our personalities are, that there are certain commonalities to people who are really transformed by the gospel. And one of them is, is this two-pronged statement Lewis makes, is when you meet these people, they love you more and they need you less. They love you more and they need you less. And I've always been really drawn to that, although also a little bothered by it. Shouldn't we need one another? And we'll talk about that. But I think that's a good description of what Paul is doing here, is Paul loves them more but he also needs them less because of something that has changed. The Even more important than the cultural background, which we'll look at in a second, is just how the gospel changes gifts, how the gospel changes um, the way that we give and receive and the way that we relate to one another. To put it this way, and I'll, I'm going to end in a few minutes by quoting a great line from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together. The most important thing, and I, I should have said this more often throughout this series because it's always there under the surface in this subtext of Philippians is Paul in the Philippians, he clearly describes their relationship in the ancient context of friendship, which is a great thing. We should all be friends with one another in Christ, participate in this relationship. But Paul is also explicit over and over and over again that Paul and the Philippians are not in a relationship with each other in isolation, but in a relationship that also includes God. 
that also includes Christ, that there's a three-way bond. And what Paul is doing here is he is bringing God, he's bringing Christ into this moment of, for most of their relationship, Paul has been the one giving to them, and they have been receiving. Although he does acknowledge, and we saw it, we heard it in 2 Corinthians, this church has been unusually supportive of Paul financially over the years compared to other churches. But for the most part, and, and this is often true with a pastor or with leaders or, or someone who's older than you, who's discipling you, is yes, there's a friendship. Yes, there's reciprocity in a two-way street, but there's still like a one-sidedness to it. Like, like especially for those of you who are younger, in general, when you meet with me, you probably have a sense of, I, I kind of get more from Nick than I give to Nick, which is normal. I'm not at all saying, come on guys, step it up. Um, not at all. Not at all. But there will be moments in the future when I stand in more need and, and you guys will be there for me. Um, and, and that will be true for each other. And this is now a moment in the relationship where the tables have turned and Paul stands in total need and they are entirely the benefactors to him. They are entirely the givers to him. And what he wants them to understand is both in the past when Paul was giving more and now where they are giving more is to understand it in relationship to how God gives to us and how we respond to him. And so it's a great passage, both for understanding how we relate to each other in the gospel, but also it's a great Advent passage. So let me remind you of one last thing, and then we'll look at this uh, specificity of this passage. Um, Paul is in prison. If you go back and you read the end of the book of Acts, and some of you may remember this, the end of the book of Acts is pretty anticlimactic to many readers. Paul's in prison, the end. You don't find out what happened to Paul. You don't have any kind of big summary of what the impact of his life and the years and decades to come were. You don't find out whether he got out of prison or whether he was executed. You don't find out what happens in the future. And, and there's two things that we're almost certain about. One is that that imprisonment, which is in Rome at the end of the book of Acts, is the imprisonment when he wrote Philippians. Paul was in prison many times, but that imprisonment that dominates the end of Acts is the imprisonment from Rome when Paul writes Philippians to the end of the book of Acts gives us a, a very specific timetable that that imprisonment lasted two years. That Paul was in a jail cell in Rome for two years. And it is fairly certain that when he writes Philippians, it is very much towards the end of those two years. So what I want us to do as we begin is to just try to empathetically imagine what it would be like to both write this letter and to receive from the Philippians what they've given from Paul's perspective. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he has already, prior to this imprisonment, suffered a lot, given up a lot. Um, for others, he has experienced a lot of suffering, a lot of heartbreak. His adult life has not been easy, even though it's also been filled with joy. But now for two years, he has been in a dark, damp prison cell in Rome, in the ancient world. And all of these hundreds and thousands of people that he has loved and been loved by, been friends with, ministered to over the last 10 or 15 years, for the most part, they are out of sight, out of mind. He has no idea, do they even know I'm here? If they do, do they care? Will I ever see them again? I think you can all imagine how lonely it would be for these two years. Now, that's not to say that Paul was a wreck, that the Philippians shows that he was joyful. Philippians and other parts of the New Testament show us that, that he was sharing the gospel and, and the, Timothy and some other co-workers would come and visit him. But most of his relationships he was taken away from. And now he's been in this prison cell for two years. And imagine that after at the very least, probably longer than two years since he's seen the Philippians, but it's been at least two years. And one day, 
after two years of day after day, week after week, month after month, loneliness, anxiety, not knowing what's going to happen. Am I going to get out of here? Am I going to be executed? Am I ever going to see my friends again? Is after two years, one day, Epaphroditus shows up. One day, Paul looks up and Epaphroditus is standing outside of his jail cell. Um, is the is the video able to see me? Yeah. Cool. Sorry about that, guys. Over there. We'll set it up better next week ahead of time. Um, one day, Paul shows up and Epaphroditus is there. And imagine what that moment feels like. And not only is Epaphroditus there, but he's there with a letter and with messages and with a financial gift from the Philippians. Imagine what that moment feels like to Paul. This passage is Paul's description of his response to that experience of feeling like I might never see these people again. Did they, did they forget about me? Did they back down? Because honestly, for them to send a letter, to send money, puts them in a risky position to identify publicly with a political prisoner that Paul's not sure what the future looks like. And all of a sudden, Epaphroditus is there and it just changes is the way that Paul experiences the grace of God in this moment. And so here's how I want to connect it to Advent, and then we'll look at the passage. Next week and the week after, the entire sermon will just be on Advent. And so you'll hear this more then. There are three or four images that I like to use every year during Advent for what Advent is like, that, that the darkness is there, and yet the light comes from the outside, and it shines in it. But one of my favorite is very analogous to Paul here, and it's from, honestly, a very analogous situation in the last century by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who also spent about two years in prison in a Third Reich Nazi concentration camp and never got out of it and was executed at the end. If you ever get a chance, I would highly commend reading through his letters and papers from prison, where he's writing letters to friends as he, and like Paul, for most of the time, Bonhoeffer is very unsure whether he's going to get out or not. He never did. And at the beginning of the first Advent season, he would spend another Advent season the next year here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes on November 21st, 1943, about a year and year, year and a half before he's executed to his best friend, Eberhard Bethgay, November 21st. This is the very beginning of Advent. Maybe the first day is the first days of Advent that year. And he says this, a prison cell is like our situation in Advent. One waits, one hopes, one does this or that, ultimately negligible things, but the door is locked and it can only be opened from the outside. That is how I feel right now. That is a great metaphor for Advent. And so I'll get into this more next week. I'm not going to get ahead to it. But the darkness in the world, the darkness in our lives, the death sentence coming for all of us in the future, the death sentence hanging over the universe as the sun fades to black and everything goes to coldness and death. There is no one locking that prison cell from the inside. We are helpless in the face of it. Just like for Paul, there is nothing to do but just sit there in this prison cell. And then one day, Epaphroditus opens the door. One day, Epaphroditus is there with a the gift. One day, God, in the fullness of time, sends forth his son, and the light shines in the darkness. Part of Advent is not just acknowledging the prison cell, not just acknowledging the darkness, but that your cleverness, your skills, all of your agency can do nothing to rectify the situation. That help has to come from the outside. And here is Paul having given to these people for many, many years. And now he is the one in profound, desperate need. And the prison cell opens from the outside. 
and light and joy stream in. And he hears it, he experiences it as a reverberation, as an echo of what Christ has done for all of us in the gospel. And so let's look at this passage in particular. There are, um, th there's a pretty um, clear structure that helps us walk through at least the details on the surface. And then we'll talk about the meaning of the details. I want you to notice that there are three statements, verse 10, verse 14, in verse 18, where Paul makes a positive acknowledgement of what they've done. And then for each of the three acknowledgements of what the Philippians have done and how Paul sees it and interprets it and experiences it, after each acknowledgement, he immediately gives a qualifier. And it's the qualifiers that tend to bother us. But I think that those are the things that we need to focus on. So the first thing is verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord when Epaphroditus knocked, when the prison cell opened and he was there and your gift came and I knew that you hadn't forgotten me and that you were for me and that you were sacrificially giving to me. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you had revived your concern for me. Revived there is a, um, an agricultural word. There, there's a better word for that. Um, plants, trees, and, and it's a word that just refers to a tree or a plant that has gone into kind of hibernation in winter, there's no leaves on it, and now in the spring it's bloomed again, that their love for Paul has bloomed again, that Paul feels the sunshine of their love in a way that he used to after a long season of dormancy, and then he immediately says, and I know it's not because you actually were cold towards me, it's just that you lack the opportunity. And so he just says, I rejoice in the way I'm experiencing God's grace and love through you right now. But then he gives this qualifier, not that I am speaking of being in need, because I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is a very famous couple of verses here, often taken out of context, as many of you know, but often just not seen in terms of this situation. I know how to be brought low. That's uh, that's a watered down translation. It, it's literally the verbal form of humiliation there, which is a word that has shown up often in Philippians. Just as Jesus was humbled or humiliated, Paul knows how to be humiliated, to be absolutely have the rug pulled out from under his feet, and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And man, this has got to be one of the top 10 abused verses in the entire Bible, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. First thing to say about that is that's not true. Um, you can't jump off a building and fly if you pray enough um, or through Jesus. You can't become an NBA pro basketball player if you just have enough faith in Jesus. There are many things, most things you cannot do through Christ who strengthens you. And so just hear that. And also it's a bit, and that's not the context. All things here refers to being able to flourish whatever the context around you, whatever the circumstances are in hard circumstances, which bring their own sets of challenges in good circumstances, which also bring their own sets of challenges. Paul is able to be joyful, is able to be um, filled with love for God and love for other people and to be content, whatever the circumstances are. A better translation there is not that I can do all things, that Paul is actually in the passive here. Literally what it says is, in all things I am empowered through Christ who strengthens me. That's a better translation. It's not I can do all things, it's that in all things Jesus's empowerment of me is there. 
and I'm able to be content. I'm able to do this. So again, already, hopefully you can hear it. The, the disclaimer here is not, hey, just so you guys know, I didn't actually need this. I am fine. I'm all fine. Um, if you struggle at all, as many of us do, with vulnerability, with um, uh, with intimacy, with, with being um, kind of dependent in one sense on how other people around you are. Um, this is not what Paul is doing here. He is not putting the shield up and not letting them in in order to guard himself. What he is doing is in the ancient world, there were three main categories of friendship. And you see it in Cicero and in Aristotle and all these Greco-Roman moralists like, like Epictetus and, and, uh, and the Stoics and all this, is the three categories of friendship. The lowest category of friendship is useful. And this is something that you all worry about at times, which is, do these people only hang around me because they get something from me? Like, do they really care about me? Or are they going to disappear somewhere? That, that the ancient world, the, the leaders, the, the thinkers recognize that a lot of relationships in the world are just utilitarian. It's just, you're cool, and so I'm going to hang out with you in middle school because some of that radiates over to me. Is you have good connections at work, and so I'm going to be friends with you because I'm networking, and we're not really committed to each other. Intrinsically, we are just using each other, or at the very least, one person is using the other. And almost certainly what Paul is doing here is making clear that is not why I rejoice in this gift. I am not rejoicing in this gift because thank God these guys. Now, add the way, if you've ever given a gift or received a gift where you had the sense that, that the person was instrumental and the gift was the real thing, that's not how gifts are meant to be experienced, given or received. Gifts are meant to be expressions and even intensifiers of the relationship itself. They are not to be meant to be disconnected from the giver. In fact, in Romans 1, when Paul is probably more than anywhere else, articulating the darkness of sinful human beings, the core sin for Paul is that even though we knew God, even though his, his, his reality is clear through creation, we do not honor him or give thanks to him as God. Instead, we take his gifts, we turn away from him, and we enjoy the gifts in a way that disregards the greater, that, that we use God for his gifts, but we do not see them as expressions of the giver and the relationship that is there. Um, it could be a family moment. It could be a romantic relationship. It could be a friendship. Gifts are, and, and all of you have experienced this, and, and there's many cultural differences among us and our backgrounds and our ages and our families, Anytime somebody gives a gift to somebody else, especially if it's like a new kind of moment in a relationship, it is, tends to be a really complicated moment. Gifts are complicated. Let me just tell you one story. And, and some of you have heard this before. The last place that Helen and I and our family lived before we moved to where we are now in Queens was in Astoria, Queens. And this is all two years that we lived in this place was during COVID. And for whatever reason, providentially, we lived right next to another house. Our door opened out to where their door opened out. So we would run into our neighbor all the time. And before we even knew his name, before we even knew anything about him, before he knew our name, he just started giving us gifts. Over the course of two years, I am not kidding you, this man who is wonderful, but right away he started giving us gifts and we felt the awkwardness that I think over two years, he gave us at least 20 or 30 bottles of wine. He gave us uh, gift cards to expensive spas in Manhattan. And, and usually I would say one gift came every one to two weeks. 
And so we are getting gifts at an accelerated rate from someone we do not know. And so, and right away, and if you know anything about men and women and about our, Helen and I are different backgrounds, is for me, I was like, well, this is nice, but let's be careful. And Helen's like, this means we need to get him something. This means we need, I'm like, I'm not sure it does. And, and certainly not like at the rate that he gives these. And so it led to this consternation on our part of like, these are good bottles of wine. This guy was a successful businessman. He also ran his own, some kind of plant or flower business. And so we got flowers and plants all the time. And so none of these gifts are like $3 trinkets at the dollar store. Like we're aware that like all of these are pretty significant financially. And like, if we gave three of these a year to him, that would be a financial hit on us. If we gave one of these every week or two in response, we would be filing for bankruptcy. And so what do we do? And it was so clear. And, and honestly, if you know anything about Astoria, Queens, it's a very Greek neighborhood. And we didn't even know early on, is this guy Greek? Is he Latino? We, he kind of could have been either. We didn't know what he was. And so culturally, we didn't know where it was coming from. We didn't know what the expectations were. And so gifts complicate relationships. Gifts complicate relationships unless there's transparency in what the expectations are and how they work. What Paul is doing here is saying, I do not see you Philippians as means to an end to give me stuff that I need and want. That's not what our relationship is. In fact, even if this hadn't shown up, it's not as if I would have thrown away my faith. It's not as if I would have despaired. In Christ, overall, my needs are taken care of. I don't think Paul is saying that, therefore, the gift makes no difference. But I do think he's saying it's not the decisive thing I want from you or that I need from you. But with that said, I rejoice greatly. Thank you, guys. This is this is great. And so the other um, two categories of friendship, useful, pleasant just really enjoyable. I just love it. But the greatest category of friendship was that it's good, that objectively you're both committed to something outside of yourself that's virtuous, that's beautiful, that's meaningful. And that's the category of friendship that Paul wants them to understand. Then the second acknowledgement in verse 14, yeah, even though I didn't need this in the sense that you were a means to an end, um, that, that what I'm really rejoicing in is you. What I'm really rejoicing in is the intimacy that's reconnected here. Yet it was kind of you. And here's another one of these words that has shown up throughout Philippians to share in my affliction, in my trouble, to participate in it. By the way, there, there's so much I could talk about as there always is in, in Philippians. But one of the ways that this is very clearly a fitting summary to the letter is that so many of the dominant words and themes that have shown up throughout Philippians show up here. So let me go back and, and mention something I, I didn't mention. In verse 10, the first acknowledgement, in the first acknowledgement, the second acknowledgement, the third acknowledgement, Paul's using key words from the letter, and he's connecting the dots between them in a summary way. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived. The ESV says you are concerned for me. And then he uses the word again. You were indeed always concerned for me. You just had no opportunity. The, the verb there, concern, has shown up many times in Philippians so far, but always translated as have this mindset, this attitude, among you, which is also in Christ. And, and it's just tough to bring out quite in that language in English, but he's using this word for the attitude of Jesus towards us, which is concern, grace, love, and the attitude we ought to have in response to one another. And here is Paul saying, what I experienced when Epaphroditus opened that door 
was very similar to what I experienced when Jesus showed up on the Damascus Road. Someone who was putting my interests in front of their own at great sacrifice to themselves. That he sees it as a gospel moment. He sees it as one person in the relationship, one group in the relationship at cost of themselves. By the way, if you go back and you reread that passage and read further that Hannah read in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it makes clear not only are these the Philippians, not only is this not a one-off, they have regularly given generously to Paul and to other churches, is 2 Corinthians 8 makes explicit something that's not clear in the letter, which is that they are not a well-off church. They are poor. Out of their poverty, they gave generously. They're not, you know, given 10%, but they got millions more in the bank. They are already struggling to make ends meet, and yet they are regularly giving to Paul and to other Christians in need. And so here Paul sees that in verse 10 as another moment of somebody on the scene at cost to themselves giving something that meets a need for somebody else. In verse 14, the word is share, and you see it again in verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that from the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia after he first brought the gospel to them, Paul went on to other places, and none of the churches that I had planted, except you, the Philippians, entered into partnership with me. That's the same word as share in verse 14, in giving and receiving. This is the participation word that dominates Philippians, that the gospel doesn't come to us. And I've said this a lot. If I'm your pastor for the years and decades to come, as as I hope, um, you will hear me say this so often, that I agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer that cheap grace is the great endemic of Western Christianity. That grace comes to us and we basically say, thanks, Jesus, I'm done with you. Going to enjoy this. It requires no response from me. It's just something that kind of now kind of makes me feel not guilty about living a middle class bourgeois suburban lifestyle for the rest of my life with no moral guilt. That it's not what grace is. Grace comes not to say you don't need to do anything now. It comes and calls us to participate in it, to begin entering into the chain reaction that it sets off. And if you were reading verse 14 in isolation, somebody participates in, shares in the affliction or trouble of another, you've heard that story before in Philippians. We confess it every week right now in chapter 2, 5 through 11. What is the incarnation, the story of Christmas, except Jesus sharing in our affliction, entering into giving and receiving with people who are in profound need? He again describes his experience as a secondary echo, a secondary reverberation of what he's already experienced in Jesus. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And then he just kind of talks about their history, verse 15, 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, over and over again. Now another disclaimer, verse 17. Not that I am seeking the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Again, it's not a cheap grace mentality. Got what I wanted done with you. It's even in receiving this. What's the proper response to receiving the grace of Jesus? To turn back and to glorify God, which is what Paul is going to end this passage on. It is to turn back and to be um, put in a situation where your highest joy is the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. Paul receives this gift in such a way where what he really cares about is their well-being. When my wife, it'll be our third anniversary in about a week, and when my wife receives a gift from me, when I receive a gift from her, 
Not only do we not really care about the gift itself, the gift is meaningful only insofar as it helps us experience the well-being of each other, to rejoice in each other, and that's the nature of Paul's friendship with them. It's not the gift that I was hoping for. It was you that I was hoping for. It's your well-being, and now we're reconnected again through Epaphroditus and through this gift. That's what I rejoice in. Gifts are always, every culture does it differently, but any culture that is halfway healthy, gifts are not distinct from or um, from relationships. Relationships are not a means to an end to gifts. Gifts are a means to an end to relationships. A guy has a crush on a girl and gives her a flower, gives her this, buys her dinner. The flowers, the dinner, that's not the thing. It's the, I hope that this leads to a relationship. At Christmas with family members, you give gifts. It's to express a relationship that's already there and to deepen and extend and intensify a relationship that's already there. Gifts have as their goal the maintenance, the creation, the healthening and strengthening of relationships. That's what gifts are for. God did not send Jesus into the world so that we would get off the hook for bad stuff, experience some good stuff, and then God disappears from the scene. It was an invitation into a new relationship with him and also a new relationship with each other. And then he says in verse 18, here's the third and final acknowledgement. I have received full payment. Literally, I have been fulfilled and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul's not only saying this does make a difference, even though earlier it maybe sounds like it does. Now, Paul, his basic needs are being met in a way that they were not before. We do make a difference to each other. We don't just say, all I need is Jesus. I don't need any of you losers. It's convenient that we're here with each other, but all I need is Jesus. That, that sounds spiritual, but it's actually not very helpful. Nonetheless, primarily dependent on Christ, he has received grace through them, which he also perceives is coming ultimately through Jesus. And he's ready. And then he describes their gift as, for the second time in the letter, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We heard that in the story in Matthew 2. God gives us this gift in Christ, and it calls forth new gifts from us of sacrifice. That, that sacrifice is a great category for understanding participation. Many Christians, I think, would say Jesus died on the cross, and that was the last sacrifice ever. He sacrificed himself. Sacrifices are done with. No more sacrificial system. But that's not the way the New Testament talks. The New Testament says Jesus sacrificed himself in a decisive way, in a way that calls us to participate in beginning to give sacrifices, not of atoning for anybody's sin, but of giving thanks to God, of meeting other need, uh, others' needs, even when it costs a lot for us, even when it's painful, of responding to God with things that are well-pleasing to him. Verse 19 seems like he's just being, you know, religiously proper, but verse 19 is almost certainly the third and final qualifier. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here is where Paul is, not in an awkward way, but a complicated way, in the position of receiving a gift, and he cannot do anything in return. He cannot visit them, he can't send them money. He cannot give them anything. And so he is now in the position of receiving a gift, and it looks like it just stops there. Gifts are always comma so that other stuff happens, and it looks like it stops. 
And this is where Jesus makes all the difference, is Paul knows the next stage of the story, who knows how much longer it goes between Paul and the Philippians, but the next stage of the story will not be Paul responding with a gift, it will be Jesus on Paul's behalf, supplying everything they need, because not only does Paul not finally need them, they don't finally need Paul either. That God has provided everything. That often includes one another. But Paul knows not only has God supplied all of my needs so that I did experience his joy, I did experience it as, as renewal, but I didn't finally need it. My, I would not have turned away from God in despair. I would not have defaulted in God's mission to me if Epaphroditus hadn't come. Even if Paul doesn't get out of jail, they're going to be okay. They're going to be okay. And by the way, I would just say in the next couple of weeks, as we move up to Christmas, it's always helpful to try to get as many vantage points to look at something familiar, like the birth of Jesus as you can. Here is something I would encourage you to, to think about and, and even to utter to yourself every once in a while. If the story of Christmas is true, if the birth of Christ happened, then it is what, what the apostle said it was, which I, I'm a Christian. I think it is then here is one of the things it means. Not that there's no more darkness, not that there's no more suffering, but if you are a Christian, you should always know it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Whatever the future brings, God will provide everything that we need. We are not in a tragedy. We are in a comedy. And so he reminds them, guys, I would love to be able to show up with another gift of teaching or my own financial gift or this or that or my own presence. All I can give you is the assurance that Jesus is going to cover the next stage of the relationship. He will supply every need, just as there was a two-year period where Paul was cut off from experiencing the Philippians' gifts. And yet, it was okay. And so Paul is describing their friendship in a way where Paul and the Philippians and Jesus are all in this three-way relationship, and it is utterly transformed by the gospel. Here's, here's what I want to end with, with respect to this passage, and I'll say one thing about Advent. Here is, I'm going to use this word, not in its um, kind of slang meaning in our culture, but in its literal meaning. Christianity, this passage reminds us of, although every page of the New Testament reminds us of this, Christianity is profoundly eccentric. Christianity is profoundly eccentric. Someday I'll probably do a sermon series where the, 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 uh, the slogan of the series will be keep Christianity weird. Now, that's one thing that eccentric can mean, but I don't mean that there. If you describe somebody as eccentric, that, that tends to be pejorative, um, right? Like you're like, oh, Lucy, you're really eccentric. It's like, oh, why, why did he say that? Like, why did he, why did he insult her? Taekwon, you're really eccentric. I don't mean it that way. I don't mean it in the sense of weird. I mean here, as, as you can hear it, the center and ek in Greek is out. Somebody who is eccentric is somebody who is postured outward. In the relationship between Jesus, Paul, and the Philippians, all three characters of this relationship are eccentric. They are pouring themselves out to the other two parties. Christianity is profoundly eccentric. It creates communities. It creates individuals who realize that God has utterly poured himself out for us, and it calls forth new dimensions and experiences of pouring ourselves out for the service of God and to one another. In this relationship, it is a three-pronged relationship. All three parties are utterly pouring themselves out to the other two, and that's what Christianity does. And the reason, and this is why, 
um, Paul does this here, is the fact that we pour ourselves out at great cost to ourselves for the well-being of others, the, the fact that that's a, an ethical obligation, that's a command of God, this is not just true here, it's true for everything in the Christian moral vision, it's not arbitrary, it's not random, it's not because God flipped a paradise and it's like, well, you got, you got to do that rather than be selfish. It's because at the heart of the universe, and it's always been true, but 2,000 years ago it arrived on the scene, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the reason Christianity and the Christian community is called to be radically eccentric towards God and one another is because God is utterly eccentric. His Father and Son and Holy Spirit are utterly oriented towards the other two, pouring themselves out in delight and love. Now, because there's no darkness there, there's no brokenness there, it doesn't require suffering. It doesn't require sin there. But once darkness comes on the page, what eccentric self-giving love looks like is it does require cost. It does require sacrifice. And so I would encourage us in our relationship with God, in our relationship with one another, to be profoundly eccentric. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is any more or any less than this. Whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means first that a Christian needs others because they need Jesus Christ. That's a great um, kind of flip side description of this passage. It means second that a Christian can only come to others through Jesus Christ. Every one of our friendships in this room also has this third party involved in it, also has Jesus. We never relate to each other directly or in isolation from how Jesus has related to us and continues to relate to us, which is why Paul actually does say thank you here. He does actually say thank you, but what he actually says is I give thanks to God for you, as he brings the whole reality into it, in wealth and in want, through up and down, this is what we do. And again, if you ask whether Paul in and of himself here in prison, or this whole dynamic between him and the Philippians, the early church and the way it lived, how could this have happened? If you have never heard this, I would encourage you to, to look it up in the days and weeks to come. It is an older, I think it's from the mid-1800s. It's not, I think, very well known today, but one of the great poems was actually written for kids. And if you read it, you'll see it is kind of childish in parts. One of the great Christmas Advent hymns is Once in Royal David City. Anybody ever hear this? It's really, really great. Go read it. It also has a very famous tune set to it. And the reason this is happening in probably the early 60s AD is because for Paul, probably about 30 years ago now, in the Philippians, about 30 years ago, for us 2,000 years ago, that once in royal David city, Bethlehem, Matthew 2, he came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And I just love these two lines. And he feeleth for our sadness, and he shareth in our gladness. He came down, and he entered into, and he shared in our affliction, and he shared in our joy, and he brought about the possibility of joy. Here's another one that, that's not arbitrary. Why are we constantly called? And, and this is itself a different description of what's going on here. To weep with those who weep, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. 
because that is what the incarnation is. God entering into a situation and weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice at great cost to himself. And because once 2,000 years ago in Royals David City, that story happened, that chain reaction was set off. Here it is 30 years later. Here we are 2,000 years later, and the chain reaction is still happening. And it's all just echoes of the gospel. And so because the last three verses are just such a throwaway, but let me connect them to Advent, and then we'll end with the Lord's table. Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. I've mentioned this one or twice in the series, but now here we finally are, especially those of Caesar's household. What an interesting line. What a profound line at the end. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul's in prison. And yet he finds joy in what Christ has done for him. And, and he finds joy in sharing the gospel with others. He finds joy, if you remember, all the way back in chapter one, not only that other people are responding to Paul's imprisonment by sharing the gospel out of good motives, but that they're sharing it out of bad motives. He rejoices in that too. But now finally, we get a little glimpse of something we haven't heard yet, which is in these two years, Paul is in the heart of darkness in the ancient world, the unjust imperial city, Babylon, Rome. And he is in the heart of darkness and he is a political prisoner, and he has not seen his friends in years, and every, humanly speaking, every reason to give up, to despair, and yet in these two years, some of these Roman soldiers, some of these Roman officials have become Christians through the Apostle Paul, and so he says, I'm not just greeting you with Epaphroditus and Timothy and Luke and my coworkers, some of these soldiers who have to now guard me, they also greet you because they're now Christians. Some of these people who work for Caesar, they greet you because they are now Christians. What a great Advent moment that there is profound darkness, and yet in the darkness, the light is shining, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's what Advent is about. The prison cell opened in the darkness. Other people had become Christians. Paul's filled with joy. With one, this is such a great Advent moment. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, which is why, so counterculturally, as we finish Philippians, this is why we can rejoice no matter what the circumstances are. This is why we can give thanks no matter what the circumstances are. This is why Paul has learned the secret of in affliction and in prosperity, in wealth and in lack, in all things. He is just caught up in this chain reaction of eccentricity, of receiving and giving back to others what Christ has first done for him. And so as we both finish Philippians and as we go into Advent, um, this is this is the call for us as the church in our different culture, in our different context, is to just be part of this chain reaction, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to be genuine friends with each other, but also with Jesus at the origin and the center of our friendships, and to be part of this new eccentric community. When you reread Philippians in the future, I hope that you hear that, that this is such an unlikely scenario, that Paul and the Philippians and some of Paul's own jailers and Caesar's household, that all of this would have happened, and it's all because once in Royals David City, he came down from heaven to earth, and he feeleth our sadness, and he shareth in our gladness. And now, go and do likewise. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this incredible letter as we finish it. And, and 
on Sundays at least. It could be years, decades before we come back to Philippians again. But whenever we reread it on our own, and especially just as the fallout of these last few months of getting to study it, I pray that you would help us to, to step into this chain reaction that the gospel set off 2,000 years ago, that we see even within the first few decades of utterly transforming a situation and not only bringing about relationships that would have otherwise not never even gotten off the ground, Paul, the Jewish apostle, and these Gentile Philippians, Paul and his own jailers and, and Caesar's household, but that changed the nature of what those relationships looked like and has for the last 2,000 years been calling people into this chain reaction to celebrate it, to extend it to others, and thank you that 2,000 years ago, Father, that you came down from heaven to earth in the person of your son, that you, as God and Lord over all, humbled yourself and shared in our affliction, felt for our sadness, identified with our grief and our darkness, and led us to joy that we could not lead ourselves to. Thank you for that, and I pray that that would continue to change everything for us as individuals, for us as a church, in our friendships with one another, as we move into the Lord's table and we just receive this moment of utter eccentricity, of just a gift that is wholly given to another for their benefit at great cost to the giver, help us to receive that with thanks, help us to receive that with joy, and help us to be transformed by that so that that becomes the shape and the motivation of our relationships with others. Let me pray all of this in Jesus' name.